Welcome to another episode of Beyond the Budget with State Representative Jason Ortitai. I'm Chuck Nichols, Representative Ortitai. Welcome to another discussion of what is going on with the budget hearings. This is the third week we've just finished up here, wrapping up all the things that we're hearing from these state agencies. And got to hear from some interesting folks this week dealing with education, uh, the state system of higher education. That's another one. But let's let's begin with education, since that affects everyone in the state and is probably one of the most important things we do as a function in state government. What did you hear this week, and, and where do you stand on the, the money that needs to be spent in our education system? Well, there, there were a couple things that really stuck out from my point of view, from the education, for, well, from the Secretary of Education this week. And this week was more of a heavier lift. We had Department of Education and Human Services. Uh, those are two of our largest departments in state government. So when you look at it, the two things that really stuck out, and this may not mean a lot to a lot of people, but transportation for busing for students. Right now, that line item is about $450 million a year. The big problem with that is, is every year, the schools have to basically get waivers from us to be reimbursed for bus transportation because we can't pay them until the new budget cycle starts. So instead of being able to pay them every month, usually we get to, I think this last year we got till March. So if school goes past March, which it does in in every school district in the state, the school's got to wait to get reimbursed until we pass the budget again. So that's problematic. So they're almost $200 million behind, yet the governor's proposal flat funded the line item. So when you look at it, it's not something that is good. And we need to address this because at some point there's going to be a moment of reckoning. And that moment of reckoning is when we are so far behind that nobody gets reimbursed. And we're already in March. If we let this go another year, we'll be back in January. Another year after that, we'll be in November. And before you know it, school will start and nobody's going to have any money for busing, even though we're at 450 to $500 million in a line item. That's a big deal, you know, especially for the rural school districts and for school districts who don't own their own busing companies. And a lot of these busing companies, you know, they're they're not out to screw the people over they're they're trying to provide a decent service they're willing to work and and, and work with school districts to to work these deals out but at some point money's got to be allocated and they've got to know money's coming in they can't just keep doing these services right definitely we see the trends and for state government to leave it level funded i think is is a bit short-sighted i mean we know what the costs are we know what they are the school district for the most parts they get to negotiate their busing contract you know in, in in some cases and i have a school district back home where they haven't renegotiated their bus contract in over 10 years that's problematic we need to drive school districts to get more competitive bids in uh, but yeah these are not like life altering life changing contracts but they are important and the cost of transportation have gone exponentially up over the last few years. So we need to make sure that we're going to address this line item moving forward. It's very important. We can't we can't have schools waiting to get reimbursed from December through June. It's just it's it's inappropriate. We see that. I hope that we address it in, in this budget cycle. But I, I will also say the other thing that seems to be across the board, I watched it in the Senate hearings uh, and, and on both sides of the aisle, was the governor's proposed cut to school safety. The school safety grants for the last two years have been funded at $60 million, and in this year it's proposed to be at $15 million. So that's a that's a $45 million cut at a time where the governor says this is a priority. Well, you can't have it both ways. You can't say it's a priority and then cut funding for it. Uh, from what I understand, and again, I sit on the School Safety and Security Committee. I had a chance to talk to the executive director about the $15 million and what their intention was. Because over the last couple of years, uh, the schools have gotten every school has gotten money that is applied, but then there's the competitive part, which is about thirty to forty million dollars 
uh, where schools on average this year got about two hundred thousand dollars, and there were hundred about one hundred and thirty four school districts that got that money out of the five hundred. So that's a big discrepancy. Well, this year they want to focus on mental health and mental health professionals, psychiatrists, school counselors, those types of things. And being a member of that committee, the last couple of years, the vast majority of that money has been spent on physical spent on physical security. So things like metal detectors, doors, windows, cameras, uh, motion detectors, things like that. And not paying attention necessarily to making sure that the mental health and stability of the students and the people working around there are are in the right place. That's absolutely correct. Um, and this fifteen million, I don't think, is enough. And I have a, I have an interesting proposal. I've been trying to develop it over the last couple of weeks since I've learned what the governor kind of wants to do. Uh, and I'm actually going to engage with the governor and I'm going to engage uh, with the Senate as well on this idea was if we're going to move forward here and year three is where we're going to draw a line in the sand for mental health for schools, then let's create a three year pilot program for every single school district. The IU's included. We can include the charters as well and say, OK, this is what we're going to do. If you want to hire you as a school district want to hire a mental health professional or a school counselor in year one if you apply you will automatically get this year one we'll fund you at fifty thousand dollars year two will go to 30 year three will go to 15 but by year four you're on your own just to kind of help the school districts get ready for it so it's not a oh here you go there's fifty thousand one year and nothing the next year now i know those those salaried professionals will probably you know the salaries are going to be more with benefits but again that's up to the school to decide what that total compensation package will be, but it's enough from my point of view for the state and the local school districts to share in that cost. It is not the sole responsibility of the state to take care of that for you. It should be a share. It should be a shared cost between the state and the, and the school district and allow them to work up to it. Now, I don't know the total number. I, you know, math is hard sometimes. So you look at, I think it might be about $50 million over the next three years annually to fund this. And the best part of this is it gets rid of the competitive process of it. So no longer do you have schools competing with each other to get this grant money. If you apply and you want to follow within the parameters of mental health professional and bringing you know, professional help in, then you'll get the money. And I think that's a, a much better alternative than what the governor wants to do right now and what we're currently doing as of today. And it's almost a lottery system the way it is today. Even with applications, you, 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 you think you're, you're trying to do what's best for your students and you end up behind the eight ball because you didn't get the money you expected. And that's the that, and that's the problem. You know, we had 134 schools out of 900 applications get competitive money. Now, 497 school districts actually applied. Uh, the three for whatever didn't. But if you applied, you got Part A money, which is anywhere from 30000 to 45000 The Part B money, they divided the state up into 12 regions and put about 2 or $3 million into each region and said, all right, we're going to look at grant applications and we're going to grant money out in this area. So if one school district had a really strong application requested $500,000, they got most of the money in that region. And that means a lot of the other school districts probably didn't get anything. And that also means that the school districts who had great grant writers probably got something. And the school districts who maybe need the things the most, who didn't have enough money to spend on on, on professional presentation here, might have gotten chipped. And that's right. And some of these school districts, to your point, they don't have the time to sit down and fill this this application out. And we're in year two of this. In year one, we had over $230 million in requests. It was revised down to $180 million. And this year, we had $116 million in requests. You know, I, I would venture a guess that trend would continue to go down as local school districts uh, attempt to resolve their school safety issues locally with their own budgets and then with the state money coming down as well. I would suggest by year three they would have had their physical security 
pretty much taken care of to where they needed to at this point. I mean, we've given them three years to really get this stuff in order. Let's move on and talk a little bit about the next step in education, one step up into the state system of higher education. There's been a lot of uh, batting back and forth of ideas to make this system more efficient, um, also make it more available to students in the state to make sure that uh, folks are not wasting their money getting degrees and things that they can't use in real life, making sure that our kids are educated to do the jobs that are actually out there. What is going on in your perspective with the state system, and and uh, what did you hear this week that maybe gives you a little bit of pause? Well, the, the state system hasn't been in the best situation in our history. I'll just lead with that. But I, I am optimistic about where it can go if the chancellor can pull off what he wants to do. Now, in this year's budget, there's $20 million allocated to the PASHI system for a system redesign. The problem with the PASHI system is they have seen a huge decrease in enrollment. I mean, I think we're talking 20 to 25% over the last few years, and that's devastating for these schools. So when you look at that, you have to figure out how are you going to address the cost? Because every school, every campus has got their own hard overhead costs that they have to pay every single year no matter what. Plus you have your deal with the, uh, with, the, with the professors and their union, and that makes up a majority of the cost too. So you have to figure out how you're going to streamline your service and compete in this market. I think, one, I think a couple years ago I actually looked. There are over 300 college campuses physically located in the state of Pennsylvania. 300! So there is a ton of competition in Pennsylvania. Not to mention you have other bordering states that other you know college you know kids go to. You know just because you're born here doesn't mean that you end up staying here for college. And we do with our major schools like Pitt, Penn State, uh, and Temple. They attract students from all over the country. The problem is is we're starting to fall behind because the whole point of Pashi was to be affordable. Affordable, and it really, quite honestly, is still. It's one of the cheaper options in the state, but it when you look at the states around us. It's, it's jumping up. It's jumping up because of the drop in enrollment and because of the increase in cost. So what the chancellor wants to do is streamline things by letting kids take courses from the entire state system, not just from one school. So it's it's ridiculous if you have one class left to take to finish your degree and it's not offered again until next semester and it's offered, let's say, at, at Clarion or California University, that you can't take it and finish it there or take it online. Like, I think that's pretty much a no-brainer. The other part of this is forming partnerships with the major employers in Pennsylvania, with our jobs in demand, to put together really good curriculum for these students. Because at the end of the day, we want kids to go to the, we want kids to get their degrees, but we also want them to be able to get jobs, you know, family-sustaining careers and in-demand jobs in Pennsylvania so they stay here. We just don't want to educate them here and then, you know, transport them off to Florida, California, Texas, or whatever state outside of Pennsylvania. I mean, that's that's where we need to focus it on, and I think what got Pashi in trouble, you know, before the before the drop in enrollment was that every school tried to be everything. They tried to offer every single degree program. Well, back in the '80s, and I would even say into the early '90s, every school kind of had their niche, what they were really known for, and I think they got away from that. And I think they need to transform back into that system. You know, California University is known for putting out fantastic teachers. You know, Clarion is a business school. They were known for that. And, and so on across the entire system. But that is where this needs to start. Um, you know, since I've been here, I think this is the fourth, maybe fifth chancellor for the PASHI system. And I've only been here for five years. So that tells you how, how much of an uphill battle this is. But it needs to be addressed. And I think the chancellor is attempting to do that. There's a lot of things that we need to do as a legislature to help with that. Because let's face it, 
at the end of the day, we are providing record record levels of funding for our for our system here. And I, I had to, you know, I, I'm going to throw this out there. You know, it was amusing to me to watch and say that our professors are underpaid. Uh, and then have the same person say that our student loans and student debts are out of control. You can't have it both ways. When when most of the cost to run a, a college, 80 75 to 80 percent, is staffing, you know that's going to cause tuition to go up every year if you have consistent raises every single year. And I'm not saying the teachers aren't, aren't deserving of it, but you can't expect tuition to drop at that point. So you can't have it both ways. So we have to get some other costs in line for them. Um, you know, FIA has stepped up with delivering earnings from their from their operation, and FIA actually really doesn't take any money from the from the taxpayer. You know, we give them money to invest and then hand back out via grants, which has been fantastic. But I, I will tell you that at some point in time, we as a state are going to have to figure out: do we want to fund an institution or do we want to fund the students? And you know, I don't want to drop a grenade here and pull the pin. But at the end of the day, your know, student loan debt is a problem. What if we gave the money out in loans via FIA to our students in state and said, "Here's your money. Here's five, ten thousand dollars. Go pick whatever school you want." Instead of giving, I think what is it? I, I averaged out one point four billion dollars that we give to our state institutions of higher ed. One point four billion, and we are among I think we're forty eighth or 49th in student debt as far as being one of the worst in the country. Like, if we made that switch, I know there are changes that would have to happen. It would make every one of our schools instantaneously have to be competitive because they're going to compete for the student. And it's not fair that we give these institutions $1.4 billion to compete with each other over the same student. I'd rather the schools, I, I would rather the student figure out where they want to go yeah, and, and take that money And essentially teach teach the same thing. You're duplicating so many services at these at these. Yeah, universities. The other thing that the when it comes to higher education that we still have are what we call the state related. There's a, a couple of colleges that we that aren't part of our state system that are funded to an extent by our state government and get a little bit of money from us. What's going on with Penn State, uh, Temple, Lincoln, and Pitt? Yeah, I really didn't dive into their budgets too much, and I'll be honest. The same thing with Pashi is because I, I there is, I think it's almost impossible for anyone to have an appetite to cut their funding because of, of fear of what people will say. So when you look at Pitt, Penn State, Lincoln, and Temple, and some of the things that they're doing, like Penn State is our state land script school. You know, they were the among the first of the the, the quote unquote non preferred schools to get hundreds of millions of dollars from the state of Pennsylvania, which we should support. They do a lot of agricultural work. Uh, you, uh, Pitt does a lot of academic research um, and other sorts of information. Same with Temple. Like it, Temple, I think, is real big in the cancer research, just like Pitt is. You know, th- that is ultimately why we subsidize them and to help lower the tuition cost. I question whether it actually does or not, or if it's just a handout. But you know, that that's a discussion for a whole other day. But I, I will say, you know, I, I did have the opportunity to ask the chancellor at Pitt about the student protest about dropping fossil fuels out of their endowment investment fund and you know he basically gave me a non-answer saying that the the board of trustees is looking into it and they're evaluating their options they're doing a study and i'm sitting here thinking like southwestern pa is known for natural gas and you know coal mining and and you know steel that the whole the whole nine that keeps our economy running why 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 would you even consider doing that when your endowment fund is quite possibly one of the largest drivers as to what your tuition is. 
you know, the school should be dictating that to the students. And if the students don't like it, they can simply go somewhere else if they want to. But I, I guess my next step would be is if they do decide to divest out of their endowment fund, what are they going to do to replace the, the cost if they can't make the return? And two, you know, I don't know if the students realize this or not, but a lot of the taxes that the state collect are from fossil fuels in the fossil fuel industry. So are they willing to give up their non-preferred to make a political statement? And that's up to them. They can make that call. I'm just pointing it out. You can commit suicide if you'd like. Right. And, and the other thing, too, is, is if you're going to go full way, go the full way. Are you going to get rid of all the certification and degree programs you have that work in the fossil fuel industry? Because if you are, that's a lot of family-sustaining jobs in southwestern PA. You're talking about economic devastation. So why would a university in that region not want to teach or offer degree programs where there are high in-demand jobs for? It, 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 it's, it doesn't it's, make any sense. And that's the point. And that was the point that I was trying to make is, is why are we even considering this? What, what is in someone's endowment fund is in someone's endowment fund. That's up to the board of trustees to make that decision. You know, if the students are concerned about climate change and environmental issues, you know, bravo to them. You know, there are other ways to go about it. And, you know, you know I applaud them for wanting to be involved. I, I think it's a good thing to come out and say the things that you want and you believe. But if you're going to go the full way, understand that there are more consequences to this. It's not just, oh, we're going to drop from the endowment fund. There's a whole other set of dominoes that are going to fall after that. And I think they need to think about what's to come after that. Now, you want to get rid of fossil fuels altogether? Good luck. Yeah, that, that, good luck. It, people would love that. But you need to have to need to have a solution and it probably will come from the same industry, the energy industry, in in the long run. And, and that's the thing. We're doing a lot of great things. You know, with natural gas, we've been able to clean up the environment. You know, I think this Pennsylvania is leading the country in our drop in emissions, and that's from natural gas. You know, it, I don't consider natural gas to be the fuel of the, of the future. It's the transition between fossil fuels and the renewables. And this is just part of the process. And it takes time. And I think people need to understand that. Yeah, the world is not going to end in 12 years. You don't have my magic crystal ball. Uh, but that is part of the quote unquote drastic change that we're looking for. I, a drastic drop in emissions to over 20% is pretty impressive for a transition fuel. You know, and this is supposed to be a 30 to 60 year time period. You know, it's not going to happen overnight, but it is working. What we are doing is working and it is helping to combat climate change. Human services, the other large, large, large cost driver in our budget, uh, was another one of the. You had a chance to interrogate them a little bit this week. What did you learn about uh, what we're spending our money on as far as human services? Well, here's a couple things I'm going to throw out there. This year's human services budget has a lot of duplicative services that are already covered by Medicaid. Um, I'm not quite sure why the department has decided to offer these services when they are having trouble managing their own budget as it is. I think this year alone, they had $500 million in supplementals. And it looks like they're going to have a $2 billion increase year over year uh, for some of the entitlement programs, which is just is not sustainable. And we need to figure out how to get this under control. The issue is, and I don't fault them 100% for this, because it is difficult. Once you take someone off a waiting list, you are fully responsible for all of their cost. And it is impossible for anybody to guess or, or figure out exactly how much that's going to be for each person. It could be $30,000 for one person. It could be $3 million for another. You just don't know. So it's important to note that. That's why I'm not going to go crazy over the fact that they need $500 million in supplementals. They do need to do a better job of managing their budget, but it's not completely on them at the end of the day because they can't control the cost of medical care for one person over the next. They have to take them. They don't have a choice. They're legally required to do that, uh, but they do need to be accountable. And I don't think they've done a very good job of 
of doing that. Now, the other thing that I'll mention, you know, the secretary came out and I saw her in the Senate hearing. She didn't do it so much in the in the House hearings, was complaining about the federal changes to the SNAP program. And, you know, I, I think this might be the difference in what uh, Republicans and Democrats really think about the food step, the food food stamp program, you know, for, for Republicans, to me, if we can lift someone out of welfare and entitlement programs and off the food stamp programs, that's a win. You know, we want people to be fed. We don't want anyone to be hungry. But if we can lift them off the program into a job where they can take care of themselves, that's a win for everybody. It's a win for our economy. It's a win for that person. It's a win for our state. I often believe that sometimes that Democrats judge success, at least this administration, I, I don't want to you know, throw a, a cast a wide net on all Democrats, but this administration measures success on how many people they can get signed up on the program, which is also good and admirable to a degree because, again, you want people who need the service to actually get it. And I'm all for that. And I think everyone, no matter what end of the political spectrum you want, want that to happen. But over the last couple of years, particularly since the federal tax cuts, we have seen unemployment you know, drop to record lows, which is great. But what I want to know is, is how many people are coming off of those programs because they were able to get good jobs, people got raises, they're not part of these programs. So there should be some cost savings there, not cost overruns. Yeah, we want people who need it to be able to get it, not people who don't need it to get it. Exactly. I mean, and that was, and that was the point that I was trying to make, is at the end of the day, if you have somebody on that program who should not be on there, they're taking benefits away from someone who needs it. And we can't we can't allocate resources in the most efficient way, which is what we want to do at the end of the day. And then we, the other thing that we, we did touch upon in the hearing was the workforce development program, because there are some work requirements uh, in regards to some of these entitlement programs where the people have to, and when I say work requirements, I say that very loosely, because all they are required to do is to be actively searching for employment. They don't have to actively be working. They have to be actively searching. So when you hear work requirements, it's not that we're making, uh, you know, we're not making physical, we're not making people who are physically unable go out and actually work. That's not what the case is. Now, the media may portray it that way, but that is not what this is. But the Department of Human Services has not had a good track record of getting these people off of these programs and into family sustaining jobs, they would put them off. Even the secretary said this, they would you know, ship them off to Walmart, to Target, and you know, maybe they last a month, maybe they wouldn't, and they'd be back into the pool again. Well, what was refreshing to me, and I loved hearing this from Secretary Miller, I thought that she did a good job describing, is they're completely redoing their workforce development plan. And the best part about it is, is they can absorb it with their current budget. They don't need any additional resources. And they're actually going to do what they should have been doing all along, is taking into account what these people want to do with their life, what kind of training they need to get those jobs, and what jobs are available near them. So when they go there and they actually get these jobs, that they stay there, they have a, a much better feeling of self-fulfillment and self-value, and they don't have to come back onto these programs ever again. That's the whole goal of these, and that's that's the measure of success. And when you're so successful that you don't have to have these programs ever, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. Uh, you you said a couple of things about accountability, making sure that that people are doing the best job that they can in this and, and, and using our money in the best way. And I have to ask... From, from what we've learned and in, in, in what we've heard the last couple of weeks when it comes to how these budget processes go, do you think that the lack of accountability in especially these human services programs stems from, as you said, a couple of cost overruns that just occasionally happen? Or is it more that they know that these departments and the people in these programs know, hey, if I spend more money than what I've got, Governor's backing me. I'm, I'm getting backfilled. Just spend. Uh, is is that me mentality maybe a problem here? It, 
it, it can be, and I certainly think it has been. I think we've seen eight of the nine deputy secretaries leave in the last six months. And Department of Human Services is an awfully big department. And for it's too big for any one person to manage. And that's why it's so important to have good deputies. And when you have that many leave at one time, and we don't know why they left, and I'm not going to inquire as to why they left, uh, but at the end of the day, that's a lack of accountability there. And if you don't have anyone overseeing these departments or the inner departments of human services, how, how can you accurately track the cost? You don't have anyone there with leadership telling you, okay, this is what you need to do to help fix this problem. Or we're having cost overruns here. Maybe we can pull money from this program we're not using. Because, I mean, we talked a little bit about duplicative programs. There's a $3 million line item in here for women's reproductive health that she specifically stated was for Planned Parenthood and the loss of federal funds that they're not getting anymore. And the reason they're not getting the federal funds is because they declined to take them. So why should the state, t- I mean, it's, it's things like that where we have $500 million in cost overruns for the second straight year. And then, oh, we're going to start all these new programs over here. Well, how can you start a new program if you can't even fund the ones that you have now? And the problem, and it's not, it's not the problem, it's the reality of state government is we have limited resources. So we have limited resources to fill limited priorities. And we have to figure out how to best serve that. So we need to take care of our, of our, our elderly, our sick, our, our youth, like people who really need these programs. And the people who are physically and mentally abled bodies, you know, we need to make sure that we have programs in place, not just from a workforce development and human services, but from the Department of Labor, too. Because as I harped on in the last two podcasts, you know, that secretary has a ton of money at his discretion. And I'm not quite sure that money's being used in the most efficient manner. Now, if these departments would team up, which I don't think that they do, they should, I think would be a win for all of our citizens across the state. But that's the problem is, is our, our agencies and departments silo information away from each other and they don't work efficiently and they don't take the best, I, I, they don't take the best route for our, for our constituents and the people of Pennsylvania. So we've now heard from the governor, we heard from the departments, and uh, we've heard what his plan is. It, oftentimes, maybe not a complete plan, but we've punched a couple of holes in that, shown what's wrong. We're never going to get anywhere unless we have our own plan, unless we have a viable plan in place. What is your your idea moving forward? How are we going to get where we're going? Well, and then that's a good point. I, I think what the governor has presented with us it has been an unrealistic budget. You know, when you look at all the legislative add-ins that will undoubtedly be thrown back into the budget, it will throw his budget completely out of line. Um, so it's a starting point. And that's what I tell all my folks back home. That what the governor proposes is just a starting point. It doesn't mean that anything he proposes is going to be in the final budget. It just means it's a, it's the part to start negotiations with. Now, it is my hope that this year, and in my sixth budget year, that we will not drop off talking about the budget right now, now that budget hearings are over for this budget year, and wait until the second to last week of June to pick this back up. It is important that we continue talking and developing solutions and ideas that serve this year's budget. Again, we have limited resources. You know, we don't know what's going on with collections right now. We're about 50 or $250 million above expectations for revenue. But that could all change because March, April, or May are heavy tax months. And if we have one bad month there, that could throw our, our revenue projections way off. And then we could be looking at cuts and I hope we are still looking at cuts because there are some programs in the government that we probably shouldn't be funding or old, in, in, old inefficient programs that just aren't working anymore. But moving forward, 
I would say from my perspective, what I intend to do over the next couple of weeks is really sit down, you know, absorb all of the information that we've gotten over the last three weeks, look through the budget books, and start putting together our own budget with our own priorities in it. Uh, and, and, you know, I had mentioned earlier about school safety. That's just one of probably 100 different ideas. There's over 400 line items in every budget. It's, it's too big for any one person to tackle overall. But we have a starting point. We're going to work together on this. You know, I'm sure you know, our leadership has an idea of where they want to go, as the Senate does with them. And the governor, to his credit, over the last couple of years has been willing to negotiate, unlike his first couple of years, uh, which you know, I, I call that the, the nine-month baby budget, uh, which was nine months past due, because it was just he had unrealistic expectations of a Republican-led legislature and what we were willing to do. I mean, I'm sorry I was not willing to raise taxes by $12 billion in one budget cycle. Like, it's just crazy. But in the end, we've wrapped up budget hearings. I'm happy they're over. Um, I'm very happy to be to be going home so I can work on this from home and sleep in my own bed. But it was informative. Uh, I, I wish I, got, I, I did get a lot out of this. I wish we got a little bit more with some of our questions, but I think everyone always has that every single budget cycle. Well, we hope to hear a little bit more from you about this as we continue to look beyond the budget with State Representative Jason Ortiz.